welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. Yale University professor Nicholas Christakis will be known to many Quillette Podcast listeners for his principal defense of free expression during a widely reported controversy that erupted on his campus in 2015. But long before that episode, Professor Christakis had made a name for himself as a leading scholar in the fields of sociology and medicine. He has been named to Time Magazine's list of the world's 100 most influential people, as well as being designated a top global thinker by Foreign Policy magazine. Christakis's new book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, is an optimistic and persuasive tour de force that argues human beings are wired for productive and mostly peaceful coexistence. This week, he spoke to me about his new book from Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Here are excerpts from that interview. Your book is called Blueprint. A central thesis is that there is a single blueprint for the way humans organize into societies. Is this seen as a controversial idea in the field of social studies? Yes, it is. First of all, there's a a long dispute, let's say, as to whether we should focus on the differences across human societies or the similarities. Is it legitimate? Is it feasible? Is it scientifically correct to speak of cultural universals? And there are people who for a hundred years amongst anthropologists have claimed that there that it that it is so. Yes, we can speak of cultural universals. There are such things as cultural universals. And others who say no, either there are no cultural universals, or if they are, they are uninteresting and unimportant compared to the manifest stunning, beautiful, uh, impactful uh, varieties of culture that we see around the world. And as usual, sort of both camps are right. There is tremendous variation across cultures, but also there are strong unifying principles across cultures. And those unifying principles originate, I argue, in our biology, have to do with the way natural selection has shaped us uh, to live together. Incidentally, this also intersects with another whole set of ideas regarding how one goes about discovering knowledge about the world. And Darwin, for instance, famously spoke of lumpers and splitters. So lumpers are scientists who try to group dissimilar things together to find underlying principles. So, for example, Galileo might group planets and moons uh, together and say, oh, my goodness, we can discover an underlying principle of gravitational orbits that applies equally to moons and planets. Or you might group together species in Darwin's cases. You might say, oh, these are dissimilar species, but actually we can group them together into phyla and then make statements about evolution on that regard. Splitters are scientists who who say, look, little differences are important. Let's draw distinctions between things. And that's another path to knowledge. And in anthropology and in the social sciences, this, this, this conflict between lumpers and splitters has appeared in debates about whether societies uh, should be, we should pay attention to little differences between groups, uh, and those are the really important things, or whether instead we should say, no, we can group 
groups of people together and abstract higher principles about how people live, you know, live as groups. Especially in the years after 9-11, there was this fashion for these grand theories of how the West was different from the East uh-huh. and how de- democracies were different from Arab societies. You take a completely different approach. You analyze, for instance, the dynamics of the micro-societies that children in hunter-gatherer societies create uh, when they're left alone to play. Uh, or you talk about the micro-societies that are created uh, among shipwreck victims. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Let me just step back and say a couple things. First of all, you opened with the contrast between the East and the West, let's say, and there is no doubt there are contrasts in philosophy, in history, in religion, in, uh, in attire, in, in foods. You can pick any two cultures and find many, many differences. But what I am arguing is, is that Underneath those differences, which I regard as actually relatively uh, trivial, are deeper foundational similarities. And those similarities are, are ways of living together that natural selection has shaped us to have. For example, we all love our partners. This is actually kind of interesting. We, we don't just mate with each other. Uh, other animals mate with each other. We mate with each other. We also form a sentimental attachment to the people with whom we're having sex, whether it's a straight or gay, whether it's a polyandrous or polygynous or monogamous, whether it's a arranged marriage situation or love match situation. And I review all of this. Uh, the constant feature that's seen in all societies, with one interesting exception, is this sentimental attachment, this love of our partners. And natural selection has shaped us to have it. It's not common in the animal kingdom. Um, even among primates, it's not common, but we do it. Or another thing that's that's seen in all societies is is friendship. Uh, you know, we, every society, people have friends with each other. This is uncommon in the animal kingdom. So uh, we do it. Uh, certain other primates do it. Elephants do it. Certain whale species do it. We form long-term non-reproductive unions to to unrelated individuals, we have friends, and uh, and this is seen universally. And I could go on enumerating a set of features that I call the social suite that are foundational, that are deep, that are seen in every society, and that underlie all of this cultural variation. So it's that universality, uh, the, uh, our, our, our love, friendship, cooperation, a teaching is another thing that's very interesting. Many animals learn you know, little fish in the sea can can re- can can learn that if it swims up to the light, it will find food there. Some animals learn socially, which is extraordinarily efficient. Uh, so, for example, you put your hand in the fire and you learn that it's hot, and you've acquired that knowledge at at some significant price. You've burned your hand. I can watch you put your hand in the fire, and I acquire almost as much knowledge for none of the price which is incredibly efficient, social learning, copying and looking at other members of your species. So other animals do this, so do we, but we do something even more interesting that's very rare in the animal kingdom. We teach each other stuff. We don't just learn from each other socially. We set out to teach each other how to make a fire. This is very rare in the animal kingdom, but every human society does this. So these are all wonderful qualities, love, friendship, teaching, cooperation, go on, that are universals. And those are seen everywhere, in the East, in the West, and so forth. So so one of the big arguments is that there's a kind of fundamental kind of social order that we humans are pre-wired and are innately equipped 
to make, a set of capacities. And then, as I discussed, as you mentioned, I look, for example, at everything from hunter-gatherer children versus, let's say, children in our society. What kind of social order do they make? Or other special cases like shipwrecks. And the reason I look at shipwrecks is that in the mind of a mad scientist such as myself, what you would really love to do is to do an experiment in which you take a group of babies, let's say, who had had no cultural exposure and abandon them on an island and sort of let them grow up and see what kind of society they would make for themselves. Like, would what would be the social organization they would manifest? And of, of course, that's completely unethical. It's not possible to do such an experiment. In fact, it's been called the forbidden experiment. And and this, but this forbidden experiment has been contemplated for thousands of years by very powerful rulers. Uh, so, for example, Herodotus writes about but uh, about a pharaoh, Samtik the first, I think, who. Uh, who had this idea, he wanted to study what kind of language was innate to humans. And so he had this idea, why don't we take some babies and have them be, be raised by a mute shepherd? And then what language would the children speak? And this experiment was attempted repeatedly over the last few thousand years. Anyway, obviously I couldn't do that. Sounds like he didn't have any um, ethics review boards that he had to present no, to. No, no, he did, he did not. In fact, one of them, a Scottish king, he concluded that the, the language that they, they framed it in religious terms, like, would these babies speak the language of Adam and Eve, you know, the primordial language? And, uh, and what was that language? And they concluded that these babies, you know, spoke passable Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> okay. so, so that was their conclusion of that experiment uh, by that monarch. But anyway, so we can't do these forbidden experiments. So instead, I was looking for natural experiments, approximations of the kind of experiment that we would want to do. And there are many possible such cases. And one set of cases were shipwrecks. So I, um, so I looked at... Uh, a, 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 a sort of a compendium of all shipwrecks that had occurred between 1500 and 1900 uh, during the epoch of European exploration of the globe and found the 9,000 shipwrecks of which 20 met my criteria of having 19 people that were stranded for at least two months on some remote shore. And then I got all available um, records about these uh, survivors uh, or the, the, sh the crews, archaeological excavations of their wreck sites often could reveal information. For example, were they able to work together to build a well or a fire tower uh, and study these to try to discern, uh, you know, what kind of society did these, these, these group of people who were suddenly thrown together and told, you know, live together, figure it out, what did they do? And the general story is, is that if they were able to make a society they made a society with all of these properties of friendship and teaching and cooperation and, and so forth that we alluded to earlier. Yes, although there are some horrific uh, counterexamples, which almost are, are like something out of a horror movie, which, of course, gets into a larger theme of your book, which is the idea that our brains are wired for, for wariness, tribalistic wariness of people who are trying to hurt us. But our brains are also wired for for compassion and altruism and and there's sort of an ongoing war between the two and and one of the motifs if i'm picking it up correctly is that evolutionary psychologists and ev evolutionary biologists you think they have perhaps overemphasized some of the tribalistic uh, red and tooth and claw aspects of of our wiring is that is is it fair to say that you're you're accusing the evolutionary psychology community of be, maybe being a little bit too negative on our internal wiring. 
not them specifically. Actually, social scientists and 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 the uh, you know the person on the street in general. I mean, I think that there has been this extraordinary focus among scientists and citizens on the dark side of human nature. You know, people are no damn good, and I just think that's 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 a bit misguided. I, you know, we we focus on our propensity to violence and tribalism and selfishness and hatred and cruelty, but equally we we have evolved to be loving and friendly and kind and cooperative. Um, and and these brighter this bright side has been denied the attention it deserves in my view, and and it, and I actually think this bright side is more powerful even because if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view if if I if I came near you and you killed me or you know filled me with misinformation and useless lies you know fake news or or you or you took advantage of me in some way I would be better off not approaching you. I, we would be better off living as solitary animals, like many other animals are solitary. So, so the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs, indeed did outweigh the costs. But this connected life is this very specific kind of connected life. And, and one of the things that's amazing to me, just to pick one example, if you map, as I have, social networks of human beings, we've done this all over the world, in Uganda and Honduras and Tanzania and in uh, in India and United States, etc. You map the, the the mathematical pattern of friendships that humans make. You find a very consistent pattern around the world in these social networks. But amazingly, if you go and you map the network of elephants, that the mathematics of their friendships are very similar to the mathematics of our friendships, and they evolve these networks by convergent evolution, independent of us. The last common ancestor we had with elephants was 85 million years ago. That animal, so far as we can tell, did not live socially. And along we here we go along our independent evolutionary paths for tens of millions of years. And when we come to make friendships, we wind up making networks of a very similar kind. It's astonishing. And actually, because of that observation, it, it also gives you a kind of interesting political insight because it suggests if we can share the capacity for friendship with elephants, we can share it with each other to the extent that we find in animals analogs to the ways of living that we humans make for ourselves, it actually paradoxically increases our, our understanding of our shared humanity. And yet you also talk about, uh, there's a great study you, did, you discuss uh, in your book about small children, I think they're uh, five years old, uh, yes. who are randomly assigned different color t-shirts. And, and, and the kids know that they've been randomly assigned these T-shirts. And despite that, they kind of develop, I, I guess you could call it a sort of like in-group favoritism, bigotry yes. toward people with different color. Yes. Clearly, there's also this, this dark side that's been programmed into us. Is it fair to say that a lot of our politics is the sort of warring to and fro between the instincts to, to coalesce and to take care of each other and the instincts to draw bright lines between the in-group and the out-group? Equally, it's the case that our human nature contains this type of tribalistic, technically called in-group bias, this preference of us to them. And the experiment you outlined is actually even more depressing. It was younger children, if memory serves, about three years old. You can take three-year-old kids, randomly assign them to have different T-shirt colors. And they know, they know they've been randomly assigned. They understand what it means. They didn't do anything to deserve it. It was a flip of a coin. They can understand that. And yet, all of a sudden, as soon as you give them blue T-shirts, those kids start saying, you know, those those green t-shirt wearing kids, they're awful children. They, they should be punished. Uh, you know, they should not have any toys. 
uh, it's it's awful. You know, it's like you scratch the surface of human beings and and there you find this type of tribalism, this us versus them mentality, which is so easy to elicit in human beings. Um, and and it's widely seen, it's widely studied. We can talk about examples of it. So yes, this in-group bias is a is a fundamental feature of human beings. Now, why we evolved it is also interesting. And one of the theories about it is that we we this capacity for in-group bias, co-evolved with our capacity for cooperation. Let me let me illustrate that with a, an example, and then let me also tell you some, some good news about how evolution has equipped us with tools to escape this in-group bias. So if I put you in a group of a thousand people, or let's say in a group of a whole nation, and I said, every one of you has to cooperate with everyone else in the whole nation, this would become an impossible task. Uh, you and, and cooperation would not arise in such a population. The, the very large number of people with whom each person had to cooperate, it would be very tempting for people to defect and not be kind. They would say, well, let everyone else be nice to everyone else. I'm just going to sit here and benefit from this. Like, let everyone else get vaccinated. I won't get vaccinated. Or let everyone else pay their taxes. I don't need to pay my taxes. Because of this, this sort of anonymity, if you will, of this very large number of people in the very large group. But if we evolve the capacity to use markers for group membership, which we have done, and uh, then the challenge is, well, just cooperate with members of your own group and forget about the other groups. So this reduces the scale. This makes the problem a bit more manageable because now everyone in this large population, you just tell them, look, you don't have to cooperate with everyone in the country, just cooperate with members of your own group. So it makes it a bit easier. Incidentally, sort of as a parallel point, one of the theories about the evolution of the capacity for friendship is that it served the same purpose. Instead of saying to the members of the population, cooperate with everyone, you say, each of you just cooperate with your friends. And when everyone is cooperating with their friends, then when you look at the population as a whole, you see, my goodness, there's a lot more cooperation in this population than there was before I told everyone to just cooperate with their friends. So friendship is also one of the theories of friendship is that it emerged to facilitate cooperation by reducing the sense of scale. Some of the political tension that exists in the world today is perhaps a result of overstepping our capacity to deal with, with scale. When this project becomes supranational and you've got people from all kinds of different cultures, different languages, is there part of the political animal that rebels against that and says, this is too universalistic. You're trying to put too many different kinds of cultures in the same political basket. I'm not sure I share your pessimism about the capacity of people to cope with the threats of tribalism, which I agree with you are very ascendant nowadays with the populism around the world and with what seems to be what we know from evidence. There's America as at an all-time peak of its political polarization, at an all-time peak of its economic inequality. This has been these have been studied quantitatively and are quite clear. So there's a lot of polarization in our country and around the world right now. But here's how I think we can respond to it that also takes advantage of some of our evolutionary toolkit. So 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 before I explain that, let me just take a little tangent and and highlight another feature that's universal that we take for granted, and that's our capacity to be individuals. And we do this with our faces. So human beings, every one of our faces is is unique, is distinct from every other face. And this isn't actually an evolutionary luxury. 
you know, the you know, we have different faces. We communicate our uniqueness. Other animals don't do this. They don't need to do this. They don't need to signal this is me, not someone else. But we do, partly because we live in societies. And not only that, but you can look at it a sea of faces and tell the difference of all the faces. You have the brain power to distinguish one face from another, which is also an evolutionary luxury. Uh, ironically or paradoxically, part of our capacity to live as social groups requires that we have unique individual identities. And this is also incidentally seen in elephants. There's there's indications that dolphins have unique names for themselves. It's It's fascinating. So we have this ability to communicate our individuality using our faces and to detect the individuality of others. So that's a tangent, this that I've now articulated this sort of universal capacity that's seen in all societies. For example, in every society, people have names. Uh, it's even seen as a universal right. There may be one exception to this, which is also quite interesting, but everyone has a unique, in every society, we uniquely identify people. Okay, so now with that tangent, let me come back to the problem of tribalism, which we've been discussing. So imagine you have a, a society, a whole country, a large society, a population at the highest level, and in, at the next level you have groups, and these groups could be could be characterized by religion or 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 uh, immigration status or or language or which sports team they're interested in or whatever, any kind of ways that groups could be defined, and below that you have individuals. And one of the challenges we've been discussing is, well, how do we deal with this tribalism that's such a problem right now? Well, one way is to step up a level and to take advantage of our, of our capacity to draw arbitrary boundaries between groups and say we're all Americans. Let's say we're all citizens of the United States or of Canada, for example, or of India. So instead of privileging the differences between our groups, we'll step up a level. And this has always been a part of the history of the United States, this kind of a pluribus unum or this sort of this notion that we're anyone can be an American. You just come to the United States, you buy into our liberal principles, and you're an American. Nothing else matters. But we also in our history uh, are, have another tradition which takes advantage of another feature of our evolutionary past, and that's to step down a level. We can go down to the level of individuals and say, you know what, you're, which group you're a part of is irrelevant. I'm going to relate to you as an individual. And this is a parallel tool that evolution has given us to deal with the problems posed by tribalism. We can step up a level and, and take advantage of our capacity to define groups arbitrarily and say, okay, we're going to define away the boundary. Or we can step down a level and say, and define away the boundary by saying all we care about is who you are. And this too is a part of our history. And if you think about Martin Luther King's famous invocation, he said he looked forward to a time when people would be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Although that is now out of fashion. But he's exactly right. You need to go down a level. What matters is not what groups you're a part of. And I think this is the only way or the best way out of our present conundrum of this ascendant tribalism within our countries and across the world is to relate to each other as human beings, not as members of arbitrary groups. Interestingly, that approach is now seen in some circles as, as somewhat reactionary. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Well, you know, if you say, uh, you know, I treat people as individuals, they say, ah, you're just in denial, you're, you're a horrible racist, you just don't know it. It does seem like there has been a, a strange kind of progressive attack on the idea of treating people as individuals. No, it's, no, it's crazy. 
it's inhumane. It's 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 a, it's the most fundamental. I utterly reject that. It is the most fundamental rejection of what I would regard to be core liberal principles of a commitment to our common humanity and commitment to the special worth of each person. This idea that I can define who you are by which group you happen to be a member of, and that group membership then specifies your worth or your ideas or your principles or your character is preposterous and actually ultimately leads to a very nihilistic conclusion. Because if you believe that people are defined by their traits, then why are, why are we supporting a kind of conversation between human beings at all? Like, in other words, I don't even need to talk to you to know what you think. I just look at you or, you know, you're wearing a green shirt and I make conclusions about you. This is, this is the most sort of anti-humane, anti-humanitarian, illiberal position that you can take because it suggests that actually no communication between people is possible at all. Why bother? Why bother? If you think that someone else can't understand you because of some superficial quality that they might have, why are you even talking to them? We should all just shut up and go to our corners. This is, I completely reject this sensibility. I, I suppose the, the end point of that kind of mentality is, you know, an angry activist standing on the lawn of, of his college dean and screaming at him to shut up and listen to his umbrages, but without <laughs> responding in any way, because his, his only role is to um, acknowledge his guilt. Yes. But I can't think of any examples of that in real life. No, neither can I. Okay, let me go to another big idea you have here. These are actually words from your book. Can you love your own group without hating everyone else? I love your book, but I'm still skeptical on that question because it strikes me that as soon as a person has a theory about how do we love everyone in our society, the first thing that happens is they start screaming at people who don't believe in that theory and say, well, you're in the out group because you don't share my theory of what universal love should look like. So even the most progressive society schisms <laughs> over the question of how to uh, embody progressivism. Yeah. First of all, I see myself as a very optimistic person and I try to the extent that I can to be as charitable to every person that I meet and every point of view, you know, try to take it for what it's worth. That does not mean I accept every point of view or don't think some points of view are, are ill-informed, stupid, or destructive, but you know, you can give consideration to every point of view. And, and, and what you're discussing, that is to say, you know, the people who are advocating for universal love, and I'm not one of them. Uh, I mean, I, I, scientifically, I'm, I am arguing that such love exists universally, but I'm not saying that everyone should love everyone else. You believe in universal modes of love as opposed to universally expressed love. Yes, although I would say this paradox that you've highlighted, that the people who are, are advocating for this type of uh, very kind interaction with everyone else can become very unkind is a little bit of, you know, the classic tolerance of intolerance uh, dilemma, you know, the kind of Moebius strip where do we tolerate people who are intolerant and are they not a threat to an open society? How do we cope with, th with that? Should we therefore suppress, should we not tolerate intolerance? You know, should we, should the state use violence, for example, to suppress intolerant beliefs or, or should, should loving people be unloving? Should they use violence to suppress people who don't believe in lovingness? And, and I would answer no, actually, to both of those, uh, those, uh, those, those claims. You know, I'm not Dr. Pangloss. I, I, I fully understand that every, every century is replete with horrors, every millennium. But, but even so, what I would argue is, is that the that the arc of our evolution is long, but it bends towards goodness. 
that actually over the long sweep of human prehistory, we are getting better and better. That long beneficent trend underlies and is then magnified even by recent historical trends over the last few hundred years during since the period of the Enlightenment, where our history has also and our technological advances have been additive to that and made us even better. Steven Pinker comes to much the same conclusion, albeit from a different direction. Well, he's he's looking at the at the role of historical forces acting. Yes, so so my argument is complementary or supplementary to Steve's. Well, he comes at it from from a defense of the Enlightenment. Yes, yes, I would say so. But uh, but you know, first of all, I think Stephen is one hundred percent correct in his arguments. But 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 he's he's looking at the sort of the how the scientific advances and the philosophical moves that took place since the Enlightenment. You know, for example, a commitment to the universal equality of human beings, not always honored, by the way. We, we all know this. It takes time, unfortunately. And um, but but these principles, these democratic principles, these commitments to the universal worth of human beings are actually, for example, what ended slavery that had been an institution that, you know, had been around the world since time immemorial. So so these philosophical principles plus the technological advances, the scientific revolution, uh, the industrial revolution, these things have no doubt improved the predicament of humankind. But my point precedes that. Like I could make my arguments even if the last 10,000 years had never occurred, you know, even if the agricultural revolution had – the agricultural revolution, let alone the industrial revolution, let alone the information revolution had never taken place, the points that I've been making still would obtain – we are pre-wired to make good societies with wonderful qualities that we can revere and that we can also use to improve our predicament. It, it is an interesting counterpoint because uh, I, I think Steven Pinker talks a little bit about the uh, what might be called the sort of the software that human beings have created to create these kind of societies. You're more about analyzing the structure of the motherboard that's that's in the actual computer uh but but it's it's, it's interesting how you get to a similar conclusion but but from yes. uh, different pathways uh before i let you go i just wanted to to talk a little bit about some of the biographical details that you you hit somewhat glancingly in the book but are, are really interesting uh you talk about how your mother was an ethnic greek raised in istanbul and there's all sorts of uh, interesting political yes. subplots there that I won't get into. Um, I don't want to alienate any of our uh, uh, Greco-Turkish listeners. But you also talked about how you, you were a hospice doctor. Yes. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about how, how that and the proximity to death that that entailed, yes. how that shaped your views. Well... Uh, yes, I was trained. I'm a physician in addition to being a social scientist, and my I was trained in internal medicine. And my clinical practice until about ten years ago, when I stopped seeing patients, was in hospice medicine. So I took care of people who were dying. I was a palliative medicine doctor, and I practiced in the South Side of Chicago when I was there from uh, 1995 to 2001. I was an assistant director of a hospice, a clinical director of a hospice there, and I had uh, took care of patients. Uh, Anyone who knows Chicago knows the South Side is primarily African American indigent uh, population, but also some sort of more well-to-do people that were associated with the University of Chicago were my patients. So that was a very formative experience in my life. And then subsequent to that, I when I moved to Harvard, I was a I worked as a palliative medicine consultant and took care of dying patients there. So I think that you cannot you can't have that much proximity to death. Um, 
without it transforming you, or at least affecting your worldview. And many of the truisms that are offered, certainly I observed that, you know, people at the end of life don't wish they spend more time at the office. Uh, you know, death is a great unifier. It comes to us all. And observing it up close and seeing, you know, its raging authority, as Gabriel Garcia Marquez said, the raging authority of death, which is inescapable and universal, and and seeing its injustice, you know, how a 35-year-old mother with three children suddenly gets ovarian cancer and is felled, you know, dies within a year. Um, you know, you you cannot see these things and not be transformed. And you cannot, in my view, come away with anything but a recognition that human beings are all soft on the outside. And we are united again by our common humanity. We are united by are by the inevitability of death. And I think, I think in some way then this experience absolutely did shape me and absolutely shape my, my, my philosophical and moral convictions about human beings and about the world and about a just society. And that incidentally, it provided a kind of nidus for me to get started in all the scientific work I was doing because I had this experience when I was a hospice doctor in around 1995 or 1996 where I was uh, I was taking care of people who were dying, and uh, I began to become interested in the widowhood effect, which is an old topic in the social sciences, which is the increased probability of the recently bereaved to die, sort of dying of a broken heart. And this recognition that our social connections were so important to us that when one of the people we loved died, actually killed us, could actually kill us, uh, really drew my attention to the importance of social connections. And that's where my interest in social networks began. And then I devoted, you know, I've devoted like 20 years of my life to studying human interactions and social networks. Nicholas Christakis's new book is called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. He joined us from Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.